You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. There's nothing wrong with a little competition. In fact, experts claim it drives both sides toward better innovation and improvement. Think about it. How would a professional athlete know how fast they could run if they didn't have a competitor to try and beat? Some of the great inventions of our day are a result of competition. The mobile computers we all have in our pockets would most likely not have arrived so soon if it weren't for the competition between a number of companies. And the war of the currents in the 1880s, between alternating current and direct current, gave us the home electrical systems we have today. So we can't fault Daniel Burnham for thinking about his own competition and wanting to do better. He was an architect with an unusual and rare project. Take a massive section of Chicago and turn it into an attraction that would captivate the world. Just a year before, in 1889, the city of Paris played host to the World Exhibition, And standing tall in the center of their wonders and entertainment was a structure that we all take for granted today, the Eiffel Tower. So with Chicago on the cusp of hosting their own World's Columbian Exhibition, Daniel was in desperate need of something even bigger, more impressive than that. Thankfully, there were a lot of options submitted, but none seemed to sparkle with the wonder that he was aiming for. Honestly, for a while, he sort of just felt like he was spinning his wheels, moving from one proposal to the next, getting interested before ultimately realizing the idea was impossible or too expensive or both. But that's when he met George. George was a young civil engineer with a lot of innovation in his blood. As a child, his family moved around a bit, from his birth state of Illinois to the much drier climate of Nevada. His father had been a horticulturalist and in the 1870s took on the responsibility of beautifying Carson City by importing hundreds of trees from out east, George, though, wanted to build things. He spent a brief amount of time at the California Military Academy before pursuing his engineering degree. And by 1881, he was in that weird position so many college graduates find themselves in, even today. Fully trained, hungry for opportunity, and looking for work. But instead of getting a job somewhere else, he hired himself by starting a company that tested the intricate steel structures of bridges. But when George heard that the planners of the World's Columbian Exhibition were looking for engineering feats, he saw his chance to really turn some heads. He drafted up his proposal and sent it over, and Daniel Burnham loved it. His fellow planners, though, weren't so sure. Was it spectacular? Absolutely. But how would it work? After all, it seemed to be far too complex to be viable. So when his idea was rejected, George insisted that it would work by providing studies that he paid for out of his pocket to prove the safety and functionality of the design. 
He even found his own investors to cover the cost of building it, to make it even easier on the planning committee. And finally, they agreed, and George immediately got to work. And what he ended up building in 1893 was both breathtaking to the people who first saw it, and familiar to many of us today. It was a massive wheel that stood over 260 feet high, mounted on a central axle. Hanging off the outer edge of that wheel at regular intervals were 40 passenger cars, each capable of seating about 60 people. It was like a giant metal spider web that just turned and turned, taking occupants on a steam-powered, circular 20-minute ride above Chicago. And the world fell in love with George's new invention, as any trip to a local fair might tell you today. Even the great city of London has their own permanent version, the London Eye. But it wasn't a happy ending for George. The exhibition in Chicago withheld three-quarters of a million dollars in profit, worth tens of millions of dollars today, and the loss ultimately drove him into bankruptcy. George died from typhoid fever three years after his great wheel took its first spin, at the young age of just 37. And while most people have forgotten his personal story, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who doesn't know his name. George Washington Ferris, the father of the Ferris wheel. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. 
If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Death affects everyone differently. Not only do mourning rituals vary from culture to culture, but death itself can hit each individual in its own way. The loss of an estranged relative might not garner many tears, but losing a close friend who saw us through a bad time in our lives might cause intense heartache. Every death is unique, as are its effects on our mental health. One particular activity, though, has captivated mourners for hundreds of years. What started out as a way to literally raise the dead has now become a rite of passage for teenage girls everywhere. Its true origins are unknown, but historians can at least trace the practice back to a book called The Diary of Samuel Pepys. Samuel was a member of Parliament during the 17th century and began writing in his diary on New Year's Day of 1660. Over the course of the next 10 years, he kept a daily account of his days, including observations on things such as English politics and the arts of the time. However, on July 31st of 1665, Samuel recorded a particular story that had been told to him by a friend of his named Mr. Brisbane, who had witnessed something akin to witchcraft while in France. He'd watched as four young girls each knelt on one knee around a boy lying on the ground. He was on his back, giving the appearance that he had died, and each girl placed one finger underneath him. Then they recited a short poem, each girl whispering a line of it into the ear of the one next to her. Here lies a dead body, stiff as a stick, cold as marble, light as a spirit, rise in the name of Jesus Christ. The lines were uttered in round-robin style as the girls proceeded to lift the boy off the ground with only their outstretched fingers. Brisbane couldn't believe his eyes. Surely it had been an illusion. So when it was over, he told the boy to get up and move out of the way, and then brought in a much larger man to take his place. Sure enough, the girls chanted the same incantation again, each one reciting a single line, and lifted the hefty newcomer over their heads, each one using only a single finger. Where had the girls learned such a game? It's possible it had been passed down from people who had never actually seen it as a game, people who really wanted to raise those they'd lost. Decades earlier, from 1628 to 1632, France had seen a monumental loss of a million people to a plague epidemic. The constant reminder of death, watching family and friends succumb to it every day, had most likely affected the surviving children. And one way to make something like death less scary was to turn it into a game. A game where someone could literally be raised from the dead. Throughout history, other attempts to lift people with the lightest of touches has also been recorded, as in an 1857 volume by one Robert Conger Pell. In the book, Pell described how a man lying on a bench with his legs fully extended could be lifted by two people standing on each side of him. In order for the lift to be successful, though, the two men both needed to inhale at the same time, just before the lift. At an 1883, inventor and scientist David Brewster wrote about a similar experiment as Pell's. In Brewster's version, however, the subject being raised had to adhere to a set of rules. For one, they needed to be heavier than anyone else in the group. And second, the person was asked to lay across two chairs, with one to support his back and one to hold up his legs. Four people then stood around him, two by his legs and two near his shoulders. Their first lift often went poorly, with no one able to get him in the air. 
It wasn't until everyone took a deep breath, including the person being lifted, that he was finally able to be hoisted with ease. It was as if the air in his lungs had turned him into a balloon. The exercise is still performed today, though it's not done by science-minded adults anymore. It's played as a game at places like slumber parties, and it goes by the catchy name of light as a feather, stiff as a board. Physics does the, um, heavy lifting, with each person taking on an equal amount of the subject's body weight at the same time. Their coordinated efforts allow them to lift a person off the ground, as though they weigh almost nothing at all. And thankfully, there's no witchcraft required. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.